And, and so for that person who wrote that song, he was able to see like, wow, my writing, my art um, can actually positively impact someone else's life. This is something that the whole carceral system takes from someone is it takes from them their, uh, their confidence and their, their ability to think I can create, I can do something because uh, you're really stripped of all your freedom. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. This month on the Find Your Voice podcast, I have a special treat for you. Along with my team here at Find Your Voice, I've put together a special series that's all about the power of a writing process to create positive change in your personal life. So we're covering topics like why writing can be so challenging for so many of us, what's happening in your brain when you sit down and you try to write, why writing is so therapeutic, what it costs us when some voices are silenced, and what a regular practice of writing might look like for you in your real life. We're going to meet guests like Deborah Ross, who's a therapist and an author of a book called Your Brain on Ink, a workbook on neuroplasticity and the journal ladder. We'll talk with Audrey Assad, who is a singer-songwriter, also a friend of mine, We'll talk with Elise Snipes, who's a therapist, and the infamous Science Mike, and my new friend Rafiq, who is a public health researcher. And we'll end with my friend Ruthie Lindsay, who's going to put all the pieces together for us when she talks about how she used a process of writing specifically to cure her own chronic pain. I'm so excited for you to hear that episode and her story. If you've ever had the impulse to write anything, Even something as simple as a scratched note on a cocktail napkin, you're not going to want to miss this series that pairs beautifully with my new book, The Power of Writing It Down, a simple daily habit to unlock your brain and reimagine your life. I hope these episodes make you feel like the writer you already are. Who gets to be a writer? It's a question so many people ask themselves and so many people ask me. On today's episode of this special podcast series called The Power of Writing It Down, I chat with some voices you'll recognize by now, including Science Mike and therapist Elise Snipes, as well as a brand new one, Rafiq Wabi, whose program with hip hop writing helped men in jail feel a sense of empowerment over their own stories. We're going to talk with Rafiq about the voices we've silenced and the importance of diversifying the content we consume. If you've ever felt like your story isn't being represented out there in books or articles or blogs or whatever, or maybe you've worried that your story isn't all that different or interesting at all, you're not going to want to miss this episode. We need you. Your voice matters. Today's guests will remind you why. The world needs every voice, but when it comes to writing and publishing, We as a society and a culture seem to forget that. Let's jump in with therapist Elise Snipes. Um, I want to talk about silencing for a minute because one of the things I think that happens uh, all over the place, but I'm going to talk about specifically in publishing, is that because we have this idea 
and not just publishing, but writing in general, writing down our stories. We have this idea that only certain people are writers and other people don't deserve to be a part of the club. And so because of that, some voices end up being silenced. And I'm curious if you could talk about this act of silencing, especially as it relates to women, because this is the work you do. I'm just fascinated to hear if you have any thoughts on how we get silenced. Oh gosh, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is, this question is actually is emotional to think about, um, specifically even as it relates to women in general, to all people, but for sure, maybe even to our inner feminine. So whether that is mm-hmm. in a male presentation or female presentation, but so think I, I was trying to think about it from like a global or a collective space as developmentally as children, when we begin, the only way we understand ourselves is how we see the world responding to or perceiving us. And so if the mirror we look into outside of ourselves is kind and, and enough and sturdy enough for us to be bad and good in ourselves and all of those things, then we can take that mirror in and begin to believe those things about us. And we don't need that mirror anymore. But if the Mm -hmm. mirror, and I mean this not just in our family of origin, but if we zoom out again and look at this from a societal perspective, whose voices are valued, whose voices are listened to, the lens through which we understand a woman with a strong voice versus a man, Mm -hmm. a woman with an opinion versus a man, a woman with leadership qualities versus a man, and how we frame what it means is to say this again from the from a feminist perspective, little girls should be this way, fill in the blank. What was the message mm-hmm. that was for you? Quieter, smaller, softer, nicer, more polite, pretty, soft, right? Like there's yeah, there's all these identifiers. And so what if what I want to write is big and bold and offensive and in all caps and it's dark <laughs> and twisty and I need to say it because it happened. Well, yeah. I'm going to edit myself or I'm going to burn. I'll burn and I'll just keep that story inside because it's not yes. good, right? It doesn't fit. Yeah. There are a ton of us in the world who are editing ourselves. And when we do that, we miss out on the empowerment that telling our story can provide. To explore this more, I want to introduce you to Rafiq. He ran a program that helps support men in jail with their self-expression. All right. Uh, Rafiq, will you introduce yourself and include your name and what you do? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Rafiq Wabi, and uh, currently I am a PhD student at UCLA um, in the public health school. I'm focusing on community health sciences. And before that, I did my master's also in public health at Boston University, And uh, my main research interests uh, lie at the intersection of incarceration, substance use, and race, and kind of thinking about the interaction between those three. So I'm I'm very interested in thinking about incarceration and just the entire carceral system. Um, So that includes before someone is ever incarcerated, so from law enforcement interaction to sentencing, being put in jail and prison, and then re-entering after someone leaves uh, prison or jail. Um, and just really thinking about incarceration as a, as a health risk and as an exposure mm-hmm. and just what are some of the detrimental impacts that that whole system has on individuals and, and communities and just a population as a whole. Can you talk about the project that you started involving music? 
Yeah, so um, I I have been a huge. Uh, we call ourselves hip hop heads. Uh, what that means is just uh, someone who's a hip hop fanatic. And uh, for those who don't know, hip hop is is kind of a broad category. It, it includes uh, rapping or emceeing. It includes uh, DJing. Uh, it's like kind of spinning the discs uh, or mm-hmm. making the music. Um, it includes graffiti art and uh, b boying, which is a particular type of dance. Um, so I've been into hip hop for a really long time, and I really connect and resonate with the art form and just the history of hip hop. Again, it came out of the uh, the history of during a, a big crisis in the Bronx in, in the early 80s, uh, late 70s. Um, so it was a group of young uh, people of color who really came around and uh, used this art form to express themselves and to kind of want to create peace within their communities. Um, and so it's just a really cool art form that I followed for a long time. And so what I did was um, I applied for a small grant uh, through my school. And what it allowed me to do is to, to do a project of my own in Boston. And um, I, I just had to pick a community partner. Um, and so I designed uh, a hip hop writing class for individuals who were in a jail um, and specifically individuals who had um, a substance use disorder. Um, and mm. so I spent many months trying to find um, a jail that would be willing to let me do this. And most were pretty reluctant because it just sounded weird. Um, <laughs> you know, they're like, you want to do what? And just the complications of uh, me bringing in, uh, you know, music and, you know, a, a boombox or some sort of speaker, all these sorts of things, you know, jails and prisons do not allow anyone to bring in. So I eventually got lucky and made a connection with uh, with one jail and one person who oversaw a unit there, and she let me do it. And so the basic design and outline of the class was, um, you know, I went in the first week and I was pretty explicit that, um, you know, I am not a teacher. I am really just facilitating a class, but that um, all the the individuals in this class, all the, it was a men's unit, you know, they were, they were the teachers really. And yeah. uh, so what we did was, uh, you know, first week I just... Um, I handed out a form, asked them what they wanted to get out of it, what sort of hip hop songs and artists they were into. And uh, from that, they generated a list of songs and artists that they really like and they would be interested in kind of listening to during the class. Um, And so each week I would pick out a song or an artist from that list and uh, we would come together and uh, we would listen to the song. And um, I handed out uh, notebooks um, for them to kind of take notes and to, to, you know, just draw, do whatever they want. And, uh, and then I also would hand out lyric sheets that included all the lyrics of the songs that we were listening to. So on any given class, we would listen to the song and just start to break it down so they could take notes. Um, I would sometimes try to, you know, focus in on maybe like the similes or analogies or metaphors that are in the song. And uh, they would just break down the song and we'd have a time of discussion, just sharing, you know, what did we learn from this you know, song? What is it talking about? How does it relate to your story? And for those who don't know, there's a kind of a branch of hip hop called conscious hip hop. And, you know, what that means is that it's just hip hop artists making uh, songs that are kind of relevant to what's going on, whether it be about crime, violence, um, drugs, you know, racism, whatever it is. And so it talks about these particular issues. And so each week we would kind of focus on one of these issues. So after having a discussion and kind of breaking down a song, you know, we would do this in small groups and then in larger groups. And then after that, they would get a chance to write their own song or their own verse um, or really whatever they wanted to. Um, Sometimes they would just draw something, but based around the topic that we discussed that day. And so I just play some music in the background and give them, you know, 20 minutes to just kind of draft something up. And, uh, and then they would uh, share it. And each week we had about, you know, five or six guys who were eager to share what they wrote, 
yeah, it was, it was kind of, you know, really powerful to just hear their stories and how they were reflecting on, you know, each song um, in the week. Um, and so I can give you, you know, a couple of examples. So during one of the weeks, the assignment was uh, to write a letter to someone. And uh, we listened to the song uh, Dear Mama by Tupac. And in mm-hmm. this song, he's uh, writing a letter to his mom. Um, and he's just, you know, thanking her for everything that she's done in his life. And, you know, for all the times he wasn't appreciative of her. Um, and so I asked the guys to write a letter to anyone. It could be a family member or a loved one, or it could be to themselves. And so they all wrote letters. And one of the guys ended up sharing that the letter that he wrote, and this was an older gentleman, uh, maybe in, in, in his late 60s, the letter that he wrote was to his son. And his son was actually at the same jail that he was at. And he hadn't spoken to his son in, in maybe 10, 15 years. And so the letter he wrote to him was, was a letter of apology. And, you know, he was just saying, sorry that I wasn't there for you. But now that you have your own son, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I've made. And so he, he kind of wrote it in a song, but, but it was also just a letter. And so it was a little poetic. He, you know, he's saying it for us, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, what we ended up doing is we ended up finding a way to get that letter or that song to his son in that actual jail. And so it was just a really powerful moment of seeing what, you know, one could do when they're, when they're given this creative space. Yeah. Yeah. When they're given the power of language, do you, do you, how would you classify overall this, the gift of using language for this particular group of people? Yeah. Yeah. What, what kind of impact did you see there? Yeah. So, um, you know, when, when you're in jail and, and just to differentiate, um, if it's important, jail is, you know, where people are uh, staying temporarily. Uh, usually it's before their trial. So they actually haven't been given down their sentence. So it's pre-trial and they're being detained there. Whereas prison is where you go after you've been sentenced um, for, for whatever crime you committed. So jail is, you know, this temporary place where people are staying. And, you know, we actually don't know if they're going to be, you know, convicted of the actual crime. But f- when someone's in jail or prison, there really isn't much opportunity for uh, any sort of creative or just any outlet, period. And so there really isn't a space for them to process what's going on, whether it w- what's happening before they got there or what's going on while they're currently being incarcerated. And so the power, and this was really expressed by the guys themselves at the end of the classes, they would express, you know, what has been powerful about the class. And for them, they said, you know, this is, this is nothing like we're able to do, uh, you know, regularly in jail or prison, um, that we're able to really express ourselves and to put down on paper how we feel and understand. So sometimes they're given assignments of things to do, but they aren't allowed that liberty and that freedom to say, here's how I feel, here's how I want to express this idea or this thought. And so when they create something and put it down on paper and speak it out to to the rest of the group, and everyone's impressed by what they did, or they're cheering them on. What it showed them was, I actually have the agency and ability uh, to create something, to do something. And not only do I have the ability and agency to create something, but that that thing that I create can have an impact on someone else. And so we saw this time and time again, when a guy would write a song, they would, uh, you know, share it. And, you know, one time someone shared just a story of his struggle with, with using drugs. And um, one of the guys responded and said, you know, listening to your song, it brought me back to the reason why I wanted to start uh, addiction treatment or recovery in the beginning. And, and so for that person who wrote that song, he was able to see like, wow, my writing, my art um, can actually positively impact someone else's life. 
Um, and this, this development of this self-efficacy um, or self-agency was really powerful for them because this is something that the whole carceral system takes from someone is it takes from them their uh, their confidence and their their ability to think I can create I can do something because uh, you're really stripped of all your freedoms once you're incarcerated. Yeah, I love to the approach you took of telling them I'm not the teacher in this situation because there's th- there's a connection there to what writing really does for us and you're you're getting at it because you're using the word agency and empowerment and. But it really does remind us an act of creativity like writing reminds us that we're the only ones who can decide the path of our lives, that there's no outside voice that can tell us what's right or wrong for us, that we're the only ones who can carve that path. And I think that's one of the most powerful things that you do when you give someone access to to write down their ideas or their thoughts. So what a cool thing that you did for that group of men. Okay, so moving outside of the walls of jail for now, I want to I want to I'd love to get your perspective on this given your experience doing what you just talked about. And let me back up a little bit and give a little bit of context. So, one of the things that I noticed, I have noticed in the past year of my life especially is I feel like I've had uh, a greater awakening as so many of us have had since the tragedy of George Floyd, a greater awakening to my lack of awareness of my own privilege. One of the things that became glaringly obvious to me, so obvious that I'm shocked I didn't notice it before, is how how undiverse the voices of input were in my life. So like books I was reading, music I was listening to, podcasts I was consuming. I'd love to hear your perspective and your take on this. Like, Why is it so important for us to diversify those voices who are coming into our lives? And what would be the impact of, of having those voices be too... Uh, one-dimensional. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, kind of relating it back to to jail and prison, you know, we have all these ideas of individuals who are, you know, commit crimes or are sent to prison. And these ideas, you know, they come from a whole bunch of sources. They come from the media, they come from uh, movies, you know, how many different, you know, crime movies and TV shows are there. And so we, we end up getting a whole idea and picture of what this process looks like. We get a picture of what these people look like. Uh, we get a picture of what their lives are like. And often this is a very distorted and unrealistic view of what is actually happening. And so what we end up missing out is, I think, the truth. And so one of the powerful things for me was to to sit down in this jail and to listen to these stories and to get just a completely different understanding of, of this whole uh, process from, uh, you know, people's childhood what that looked like. We spent one week and, you know, just the amount of people that experienced abuse from their parents when they were children was just so great in the jail. And this is something we know. And so I think part of it is just getting a a more accurate picture uh, of some topic. Um, And so when we, when we don't, you know, diversify the voices that we have, we're just missing out on on the truth, I would think. Um, and and you know, and so in this case, what's so important about hearing directly from those who are experiencing um, and and you know suffering from incarceration to hear what they have to say about it is is just going to be so different than what even I have to say as an observer, um, as someone who actually experiences it. And so it's just really important, I think, for us to 
uh, really get a more accurate picture. And, you know, we, we, we are fed so many things. And so it's just broadening what, you know, what we're eating essentially. Yeah, that's a really powerful statement and very true. I would say that the thing we're missing out on is truth. It's really, you know, I'll say often like we're missing out on an entire spectrum of the human experience if we are only consuming books or movies or music or whatever, by you know, that, that uh, represent one type of human experience. We're missing out on the, the entire spectrum of the rest of it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and because of that, you know, not just are we limited in the ways that we can serve and contribute to the world, but I think we're also limited in the type of joy that we can experience in our own lives and the, um, the richness, the depth that we can experience in our own, our own lives. So how do you think we can work to create more space? This is a big question. So yeah. I'm, I'm asking you to pontificate on this, but how can we as individuals work to create more space in our culture for the voices that have been silenced? So the, the men you're talking about whose stories haven't been told as often, how can we, how can we give more weight to those stories? How can we find more space for them in our culture? Yeah, it is. It's a, you know, it's a tough thing. It's it's just trying to bring it um, into the light. And, you know, sometimes we think of, of people who are incarcerated as being, you know, voiceless, but uh, they're really not. They have a voice and they, you know, they have been speaking. And the issue is just we haven't been listening and we haven't created uh, pathways and outlets uh, to hear what they have to say. And so, there, you know, there are other people, uh, I'm in Los Angeles, and there are other people that are trying to do this type of work, uh, whether it's with creative writing or with music, to, to you know, to kind of bring that into the space of, you know, those who are incarcerated to be able to produce this stuff. But at the end of the day, it can be done. It's really up to us to, to you know, pursue it, to want to listen to it. And so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole big type of change in just what we value, right? Um, you know, when I think of the privilege that I have as an academic is with, you know, letters after my name, people automatically want to listen to me. Yeah. And, you know, partially what it what it, it's up to people like me who have that privilege, who, you know, people automatically want to listen to, or we have some sort of sway is to use that privilege to, to really pass the mic is what, you know, what I call is to, to yes. say, I have the microphone often in my hand. Um, and so I want to, you know, pass the mic to someone else. And so, you know, if, if I was really, you know, doing what I'm preaching, you know, it would have been awesome to, you know, bring a friend um, who, you know, maybe was previously incarcerated and to, you know, to include them even, you know, on this podcast. And, you know, so I think like just, just using the, the, the privileges that we have, um, especially mm. those of us who are in, in places of power and authority and to include those voices and, you know, really to do it in a way um, that is honoring so, you know, sometimes, you know, professors will bring in people who have been previously incarcerated or, you know, people who have experienced the the issue that they're talking about. And, you know, it's just really important. Make sure you're paying them. Uh, make sure, you know, you're doing the same thing you would do if you brought in another guest speaker to, to really do it in a way that's honoring. Yeah. But it's really just shifting the culture around uh, what types of voices we, we value. And I'm not trying to say get rid of academic voices. I, I think, you know, people like me, you know, have, have a role in this. But it's just thinking about the spectrum of voices and what they have to say and contribute to a particular issue. So whereas someone like me is studying it and, you know, applying these, 
you know, statistics and, you know, all these, uh, you know, fancy, you know, science things that I do, that's, that's important. And the things that I write, you know, provide some insight. But again, it's not that whole picture. And so it's saying, well, what's missing? What are we missing from this narrative that the data is not going to ever tell us? Um, And this is something I see often in my work, that my work is limited. I can only tell you so much of the story through through the science, through the data. Um, I need other outlets. And so as a researcher, as an academic, I have to say, what is missing and what do I need to bring in? And for me, that is the direct experience of voice um, of the people that are experiencing this. And so that's, you know, as someone in a position of power who's maybe, a, you know, writing on this or whatever it is. Uh, but then as consumers, then we have to do the same thing. Um, as I have to say, I'm not just going to value, you know, the, the, you know, the most recent LA Times, New York Times article that's written by a reporter, but I'm also going to, going to listen to the op-ed of someone who is, you know, had, has experienced this. Um, yes. And I'm going to value that as well. Yeah. And that word value feels really important. It brings me back to, an earlier question I asked about, you know, like the importance of diversifying the voices that we're listening to thinking about like the, the literal um, meaning of the word value, like the, the music that we're buying and the books that we're buying and the, the way that we're tapping to like something on Instagram and all of those behaviors that we have are essentially voting for these voices to rise to the top. And so how can I, put my vote behind a voice that might not otherwise be celebrated or a voice that hasn't been celebrated in the past. I think that's a really, really important point. But even when marginalized people speak up, the world often ignores them. Let's listen to what Science Mike has to say on this subject. Readers make it, they look at their bookshelf and they go, is my whole what my shelf all white dudes, white American dudes. Yeah. Or maybe I'm like a really inclusive reader and my shelf includes white women. And that when I thought I was a really good reader, that's where I was. I'm like, no, look, my shelf is men and women who are white Americans. And we make an intentional effort to buy different things because publishers follow the money. They just follow the money. Every time there's a, another breakout bestseller, by someone who is disabled or queer or is a person of color, the publishers pay attention. They go, oh, wow, I know where our next deal is going to be. So we readers control that dynamic. Uh, the publishers, we can, you know, we can, we can write all the petitions we want. They're going to follow sales trends. Yes. Uh, that's one of the things that one of the most wonderful things that happened in response to the tragedy of George Floyd was looking at the New York Times bestseller and just saying top mm-hmm. to bottom, black folks. I, that was right. wonderful. That's got to keep going. Also, let's let's do another thing. Let's not only buy women's books if we're reading about feminism. Let's not only <laughs> buy uh, the works of black authors when we're reading about racism. It turns out like all people just have lives and experiences. Yes. Like, yeah. So let's not pigeonhole people, you know, into only writing about their point of marginalization. Absolutely go buy anti-racism books. Sure. But please go buy a novel written by a person of color. Yeah. So I think that's really important. Now on the other lane, I'm hearing the kind of elitism of like some people are writers 
and some people are not. Most of the people I just named and made reference to are just fabulous writers. Mm -hmm. They are obviously people with tremendous natural talent who've also worked really hard. Yeah. There are no gender or race or ethnicity or ability lines. There's some people are just really talented writers naturally and they work hard. But I actually don't buy into any of the writer elitism stuff. I just don't. Any of yeah. it. I am a disabled person. I have autism spectrum disorder. I also have narcolepsy, type 1 with cataplexy. And so I have some real challenges. You know, I, I was a late reader. Uh, it took me a long time to learn to read compared to my peers. I still can't write by hand effectively. Hmm. And have anyone, myself included, understand what I wrote. <laughs> so it wasn't until like computers became a thing that I figured out, oh, I can actually write. But even then, I have a particularly wooden, structured way. Um, basically, before I know what bullet points were, I just wrote in bullet points. Hmm. And if you were to go back and read, you know, things I wrote when I was younger, even as a teenager, you would have not thought, now here is uh, one day you know, a professional author. The way I got there was less talent and more work. Just practicing. Yeah. Just practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing. And I believe anyone, and I mean absolutely anyone, can get better at writing through practice and create something that others should read. Yeah. Without qualification, without an asterisk anywhere. I think, and this is really important as readers and as a society, I think we'd be a healthier culture if we looked at the full humanity of an author in the context of the work they are making. If someone has a particularly severe presentation of mental disability, I still think we should intentionally run op-eds in the New York Times from those perspectives. Yeah. And I think we should all pay attention. So I think there's like a, there's two things. Number one, more people need to write. But number two, we need to do a better job of celebrating the very act and the very art of communicating at all every intersection of identity that exists in our amazing species. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think of it like there's a spectrum of human experience. And if we only focus on a certain percentage of the voices, we're only getting to experience that percentage of the human experience. And we're missing out on so much more diversity and richness. And, you know, even thinking thinking about what you said about our readership, this is so incredibly important. And I have been teaching this for years and talking about this for years. And what you're talking about when the tragedy of George Floyd took place and, you know, we saw a resurgence of, uh, at least in, in my perception, a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. I did not my own inventory of my bookshelf and realized how much work I still have to do in diversifying mm. my own reading. So this is not work that we finish doing at some point. It's not, 
And it's not work that anybody can ignore. I think we all have to think about what am I consuming? How is it impacting my perception and my perspective of the world? And then how can I continue to diversify? Because for me personally, as I've diversified my the, the reading that I'm doing, I'm just recognizing that there are layers and layers and layers of the human experience that I was missing out on. So it's not just like I'm doing this nice thing to go, mm. you know, like exercising my privilege to help someone who doesn't have that same privilege is is one thing. But this is not that. It's it's actually like I'm doing it for me because I miss out if I don't do it. So mm, well said. Listen, here's the bottom line. The world needs every voice, yours included. All that's left for you to do is pick up the pen. And if you're wondering when you'd find the time, tune in again next week. If you're ready to implement a regular practice of writing in your own life, don't forget to pre-order our copy of my latest book, The Power of Writing It Down, a simple daily habit to unlock your brain and reimagine your life. When you pre-order today, you'll not only get an immediate download of chapter one so you can start reading right away, you'll also get access to our pre-order bonus package, which is worth over $400. All you have to do is order the book wherever books are sold, enter your order number at thepowerofwritingitdown.com, and your pre-order bonuses will be delivered directly to you. Thanks for listening, and until next time, happy writing.